if you're going to seek justice, you have to do justice in the process. And part of that for us, that doing good by doing right is to actually support the clients in healing. That's Eric Chafin, co-founder and managing partner of Chafin Luhana. I think within margins, we can impact the, the end result, but we can impact them individually on a more significant level. I'm Michael Mogul, founder and CEO of Crisp, the nation's number one law firm growth company. I've built my business through practice, not theory. Crisp started with just $500 to my name and has grown to over eight figures in revenue over the last few years, earning a spot on the Inc. 500 list of the fastest growing private companies in America. Our approach has been to take everything we've learned about generating massive growth within our own organization and help the country's most ambitious and committed law firm owners do the same for theirs. In each episode of this podcast, I sit down with innovative market leaders from the legal industry and beyond to learn from those who thrive in the face of adversity, challenge the status quo, and define what it means to be a true game changer. I sat down with Eric Chafin to discuss how to cultivate a partnership with aligned values, why empathy differentiates good trial lawyers from great ones, and how to lead a world-class team with a service-oriented culture. If you want to say doing good by doing right, you got to live by it. You got to actually follow that path and, and walk that walk. And so we do that as a firm. We make a conscious decision about what we're going to invest our time and money into. And then we go in and we do it. And that's something I think we're very proud of. That's coming up on the Game Changing Attorney Podcast. Before we begin today's episode, I want to remind you that we aren't beholden to any sponsors or run any ads on this podcast. This allows us to present all of our episodes raw and unfiltered. I'm not going to push any made-to-order meal services on you or try to save you any money on your car insurance. That being said, I have one small request. If you receive any value from this podcast, please give it a five-star review. Pay the fee so we can keep this podcast free. Eric Chafin is the co-founder and managing partner of Chafin Luhana one of the nation's most respected plaintiffs-only law firms with a national trial practice focusing on representing injured victims in complex cases. Over the past decade, Chafin Luhana has achieved over a billion dollars in record-breaking verdicts and settlements, but its success is harnessed around a simple yet powerful credo, doing good by doing right. I began our conversation by asking Eric about his early years and the experiences that shaped him to becoming the leader he is today. If you'd asked me that a few years ago, I probably would have said the things I typically say publicly, which is, you know, I had a really hardworking father who's a steel worker. Um, he's also a construction worker, just someone who's phenomenally good with his hands. And so he's very entrepreneurial, always kind of working things on the side, doing different things and pretty much a workaholic. So I learned my, my driving work ethic from him. And then of course, juxtapose that to my mom, who is, you know, the quintessential traditional homemaker who was just such a lovely person, very caring, compassionate. They married as teenagers. And so I pretty much grew up with them. And so that pretty much for the longest time, that's what I publicly say about what formed me as a person. I think more recently, what I would say is, is you know, age five, I was sexually abused. It's something I hadn't actually really come to terms with or even talk about until the last few years. And so that probably impacted me and shaped my life a lot more than I, than I knew until I really worked through that and understood how it impacted my life positively. Because frankly, with the statistics around people that face that kind of trauma, you know, oftentimes they end up in a much different position, I think could have produced a different Eric than it did. And I feel actually blessed and fortunate that, that I am where I am, so. And how would you say it impacted your life positively? 
when I first um, started working through my trauma, I started January, 2015, I started meditating January 8th, 2015. And I think within the first year of that, I really started coming to terms with things that were coming up for me, you know, whether it's anger or different issues, like even sitting down on a podcast with a guy, like I would actually have issues, you know, on my team, most of our team members for the longest time were female. There was very few men in my firm. And I think it's just things that were coming up for me. And so that's the negative part of it. The positive side of it is that I, from a very early age, understood what it meant to not have a voice. I knew what it meant to not feel like you could go to someone and seek help and get help from others. And so I took that, I took those feelings and I really turned them into a drive to go help others. And so it's what motivated me to go to law school. It's what motivated me to be a federal prosecutor. It pushed me to be my very best at times so I could be the best I could for my clients, for the government, for the victims of the government I represented. And so it really defined my sense of justice in this world and really what my firm's about today. And is it true that you were the first or among the first in your family to go to college? Yeah, first to go to, to, to college and uh, almost didn't make it there. I remember I went to WVU and met with a professor before I went and he actually told me I should take some time off and get serious about life because I was pretty much failing out of high school because I worked all the time. I ran a pizza shop and I really didn't study. And so when he told me that, of course, I was like, screw that, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do this. And um, he motivated me to go to college and, and do well. So I didn't know this. So running a pizza shop, was there any, I'm, I'm curious, even, through that experience, anything that you learned then that's been helpful to you today? You know, I love Chef's Table, the, the pizza one that's out now, if you haven't seen it yet. But uh, but no, seriously, it's, um, you know, you learn hard work, um, you know, in terms of male relationships, you know, my dad was working all the time, so I wasn't around him as much. I had a, uh, a gentleman there, Frank um, Davis, who was like a father to me and really taught me a lot about life and just uh, hard work, focus. And um, yeah, I remember though too, like just as an employer now, I went to them at a young age and I said, hey guys, like I'm pretty much running the shop and you should make me a manager. And the response was, I'll either make you a manager or you can get a raise. And I'm like, wait, what do you mean one of the two? I should be getting both. But it was just my early experiences and it made me work that much harder to, to earn their respect. And, and I think there's a lot about life that you learn from something like that. Which did you pick? The raise or the, or the title? I took the raise at that time. Yep. Yeah, because I had the respect as a leader within the shop. And I mean, I was, I was in high school dating college girls who were cheerleaders and it was like, they all come home for the summer. And I was like, that's what leadership was to me at that time. It's just, you know, being kind of the top dog in the room. And it's funny how your perspective is at that time. So it's interesting, and, and you're not the first to, to say this. It's fascinating to me of, of people who were not the best, let's say, students academically, whether it was through high school or even college, and yet you get to law school and they thrive. Was, was that the case for you? Yeah, you know, it's funny. So once uh, I was Professor DeClerico told me, you know, get serious about life, I actually went to WVU and I graded into the honor system. I think I was one of five kids out of 20 some thousand that graded into the honor system. So I had to get a four, I had to have a 3.8 average. So I got a three six the first semester, four of the second semester, I graded into it. And then I was actually proud. I didn't get the Rhodes Scholarship, but Professor DeClerico who told me to get serious about life ended up asking me to apply for the Rhodes Scholarship three years later. And so, yeah, I took off and it was, uh, it was that reverse psychology that helped. It's, it's just fascinating to, to hear that at some point in your life, you had somebody tell you to get serious about life. It's interesting, right? How, how we ultimately grow up, you, you being obviously such a disciplined person today. And you know, maybe that was not always the case. I remember Nick Rowley's on the podcast was sharing a, a, a very similar story of, of just the fact that you know, he didn't really become quite as disciplined as he is today until probably late stages of law school. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I think there's other things that impacted me. I think um, you know, my father gave me a book, The Magic of Thinking Big. 
And uh, it really taught me to dream, to really look beyond my circumstances. I think it's just, I took it to heart. Stories he would tell me, you know, he was a very poor kid in Western Pennsylvania growing up. He used to, you know, have one pair of pants he'd wash each day before he went to school because he just, you know, couldn't afford anything more. He'd collect pop bottles alongside the road and kids would throw stuff at him. I took those stories and internalized them to myself and I use them to motivate myself at times. And so probably Michael, I'm sure you could relate to is, you know, that just sort of immigrant journey. I know with Rupal, who's my law partner, very similar. You know, we internalize and we start looking for financial security. And so it really drives you for success. You know, at the same time, I think it can drive you too far. And I certainly have had points in my life that happened, but, but yeah, it definitely gave me a drive. So I'm curious, so coming out of law school, you went to a large corporate defense firm and then later moved on to being a prosecutor. What was that journey like? Yeah, so first of all, I, I went to law school with the mindset that, you know, could great on the law review do that. And I'm like, I passed it up because I wanted to try cases. And so I did really well in moot court and I got invited to be a uh, third year practice uh, certified intern at the US Attorney's Office. So I tried three cases to verdict during my third year of law school. And so coming out, I'm like, okay, where do I go and what can I do? And the career services office is like, well, you're in the top of your class. You gotta go to Pittsburgh. That's where you're going to Pittsburgh. You gotta go to the best firm. And so I went to Reed Smith, which is the best firm at that time. And I walked in, I'm like, this place is nothing like what I expected to be or wanted to be. And I just had no frame of reference, but I found my way onto a couple of trial teams, tried some cases, but at some point in time, I found myself working in the labor and employment group. And it turns out the one of the attorneys I was working with actually worked on a case that involved my dad. And I didn't know at the time, but my dad growing up, and there's part of this is on our website, but I'll tell you the full story. Growing up, my dad would take me into like lumber yards and different places with him. And uh, he'd use examples with me of like, you know, just people like shaking hands and treating everyone with respect and humility. Don't forget where you come from is what he would tell me. One of the stories, he was a, in a union arbitration where he as a union worker was actually in the arbitration and testified. And then afterwards, he went around the room and shook hands with people. And he went to shake hands with this attorney and the attorney refused to shake his hand. And so he used to use that as an example with me growing up, you know, like, hey, never be like that. When you become a lawyer, treat people with respect, understand where you come from, where you came from. And so I ended up at Reed Smith and I, I went to do a clerkship and I came back and I was working with this lawyer. And one day he came into my office and said, hey, listen, I'm working for the steel mill in West Virginia. We're in West Virginia, which is where you grew up. And uh, I haven't worked with him for years, but I'd like you to go with me on this and, and, and work on it. And I was like, okay. And it dawned on me that the attorney walked with a limp and had a cane. And my dad had told me about the story with the attorney wouldn't shake his hand. And he told me some attributes physically of the guy and it was met the match with this guy. And so I went back to my dad and I was like, hey, listen, like, you know, was this person happened to be X person? And he's like, yeah, how did you know that? And it turned out it was the person that I was, uh, that I was working with. And so, you know, I get almost tearful thinking about that because when I look back at it now, it's just my heart wasn't aligned with where I was obviously. And I was trying cases, I was doing things on a level that most second, third year associates at Reed Smith weren't getting to do, but it just didn't sit well with me in terms of the person who I was. From that, I just um, decided I didn't wanna do corporate work, didn't sit well with me. And uh, it works for some people, I have great friends that still do that work and have a lot of respect for it, but it just wasn't who I was as a person. So then how do you go on become a federal prosecutor? And then what, what was that experience like? Yeah, you know, it's great. I have to say, people say that being a federal prosecutor and assistant U.S. attorney is one of the greatest jobs there is. And it's true, particularly in New York City. Yeah, I went there in 1999 and uh, just had phenomenal trial experience. And the great thing about the U.S. attorney's office is that you go and you become a prosecutor who can stand on their feet, 
argue cases, connect with jurors. The jurors looked much different than how I grew up. I grew up in like very gentrified white West Virginia, went to Brooklyn, New York, where there's a lot of minorities. And I had to learn how to really talk and you know, become someone a little bit different actually in working with those jurors, which I think is an important life lesson. But then of course, like, you know, you have to know how to write. You actually have to be able to do wiretap applications and explain your proof. And uh, all those early skill building things are really important to me. But probably the thing that impacted me the most was uh, my wife at that time was pregnant with my son and then 9-11 happened. And uh, we always thought that we would end up back in Pittsburgh. And then after we lived through 9-11, we just decided we, at the time, really, really Giuliani when he was, I will say, in my opinion, sane. You know, we really took to heart what he said and decided to stay in New York and really make a home of it. And so we stay in New York, but I did make my way back to Pittsburgh. So, so I, I don't know that I'd ever asked you this. I'm, I'm curious, what was, the, what was the reasoning behind your decision to, to start your own firm? Yeah, you know, I say it's planes and prostitutes. That's the reason why I did. And it, I came out of the U.S. Attorney's Office and I passed up being a partner at, you know, major law firms. And, you know, at the time we were having an executive coach and her saying to me, like, are you sure you want to do this? And at first I'm like, well, yeah, I do. And, you know, she's like, yeah, the money's one thing. You're passing up a lot to go this other route, but, uh, but I'm concerned about you. And I was like, what do you mean? She's like, well, you have this passion when you talk about it, like it's just, just driving passion that uh, I'm a little concerned you're gonna get burned out. And so it's time, I'm like, yeah, yeah, whatever. Like, that's all nice, but of course I'm gonna go do this. And I did. I was very idealistic in terms of what I thought a plaintiff's attorney was supposed to be. And I ended up with a couple of firms where the values weren't aligned with where I was, but I was had the good fortune of actually uh, finding someone within those firms, Rupa Luhana, who's my law partner now, who really our values were aligned and we worked a lot together. And um, eventually after just a couple of you know situations, we had a client where Rupal and I were getting on a plane to fly to Los Angeles to try a case. And uh, literally we landed in LA and we got word from one of the partners that the it was my client. And uh, without telling the client, the case got settled. And, uh, and so I'm just like, you know what? Like, this is complete bullshit. This isn't the way I want to practice my, you know, my cases and my, the area of law that I want to practice in. And so um, we just decided we should start a firm. What were those values? I, I'm curious, you know, when, when you and Rupal met, what were the values that you were aligned on? Were, were you a partner person at the time? Like, did you anticipate kind of going that route? So I was an associate. She was an associate, but she was actually coming right out of law school. And uh, of course, I had the experience I did in terms of big firm clerkship and then federal prosecutor. So I felt like I knew a lot more than I probably did at the time. I was, we were doing a lot of securities fraud litigation at that time. And so we spent you know, a couple of years working together. I became a partner at the firm I was at, at that time. Uh, we actually left and then went to another firm and started up the mass tour practice at the other firm. I remember sitting down with the partners of the second firm and Rupal was actually expecting with her, her, one of her daughters at that time. And them kind of going like, wait, you're bringing her with you? She's expecting. And I'm going like, are you kidding me? This day and age, we're actually having this conversation. And so I was like, yeah, yeah, of course I'm vouching for Rupal of all people. Like she's the hardest, she's worked harder than most anybody. Tremendously hard worker. But yeah, I think for us, it was um, the values, you know, loyalty, family is really important. Um, certainly hard work's critically important. And, you know, Rupal's just wickedly smart and um, really capable person and a, a great lawyer. So how, how would you describe the dynamic between the two of you? You know, it's interesting. I think we understand the dynamic better um, having worked with Crisp and Jess and certainly understanding our print and Colby, for example. But, 
you know, it's interesting when we first started, you know, I did a lot of, um, you know, sort of bigger picture and would do depositions. Rupal did all the prep for him, did a lot of things like that. And so she's very detail oriented, whereas more, I was more bigger picture. And of course, you know, love doing cross examinations. And so that was probably our early on dynamic and now flip the, the roles and, you know, Rupal's in Florida today and this week and next week, arguing Dalbert motions and the Zantac litigation. You know, my other partner, Pat Boos, trying a case in, in Pittsburgh right now. And it's it's been an adjustment for me in a really good way, a very positive way, um, just to step back and, you know, be able to support them and what they're doing. And, uh, you know, it comes full circle. And Eric, I know, interestingly enough, we were actually talking about this earlier today. What would you say, I mean, just in between the two of you and, and the firm have been some of the, the greatest achievements? You know, greatest achievements. I mean, we did the dentures use of litigation. So super polygrip, for example, doesn't have zinc any longer. I know we had a hand in that. You know, there are other pieces of that case, like the fixant litigation, which was, you know, we did 14 appeals in that part of the litigation. I like to say the defense attorneys at the time, but I also say now is it was one of the greatest pro bono projects we've ever done. Because look, if you want to say doing good by doing right, you got to live by it. You got to actually follow that path and, and walk that walk. And so we do that as a firm. And so we make a conscious decision about what we're going to invest our time and money into. And then we go in and we do it. And that's something I think we're, we're very proud of. So speaking of which, and you just mentioned it, doing good by doing right. I guess you could say it's almost like a slogan of the firm today. How did that come to be? Yeah, I mean, I think initially it was, um, you know, part of what I said, the, the planes and prostitutes sort of reaction to that is, you know, that's not who we are. That's not what we wanted to be. You take sort of that, that old guard sort of view of mass torts and what people are doing. Like, you know, there's just a reaction to that to some degree. With that said, I think that the fuller knowledge from my perspective is just my own personal journey. Having been sexually abused at a young age, someone with a lazy eye at five, six years old, feeling all alone and really wanting to do well by my clients, I wanted to make sure that we didn't get lost at some point in that. And so, you know, just our relationships, you know, among referral partners, among our clients and our communities. You know, I had a situation this week where we had a wrongful death case um, come into the office. It was a woman who was in an accident. Her husband was killed. She was injured. We went to sign up the case and it turns out a friend of mine from Weird West Virginia signed the case up over us. He actually got the case and we didn't. I picked up my cell phone. I gave him a call. He's someone I've fished with a ton. We've just been good friends with. And it was actually because someone, the, the way the client said it, I was like, oh, I hope, I hope we, don't, we weren't getting bad mouth about it. And I knew him. I was like, I don't think that's the case. But what I was really calling for, and he was quite surprised about is my mom, who is a social worker with our firm, said to me, Eric, when I spoke to this woman, Marge, I was really, I'm really concerned because she's obviously very upset at losing her, her husband. She's really upset right now. And I don't think she has the resources to get the counseling she needs for grieving. And I wanna reach back out to her in a couple of weeks. So I was literally calling Jeff to say, hey, Jeff, is it okay with you? You know, my mom, can my mom reach back out to her in a couple of weeks? We're not trying to take the case, not gonna step on your toes anyway, but just in a loving, supporting way. And my team, and I think Jeff was taken aback by, not my team wasn't, my, but Jeff was taken aback by like, wait, you don't have an interest in this? You wanna actually reach back out to the client? And the answer is yes, it's the right thing to do. And that's really just uh, how we operate as a firm. And then just the firm as a whole, I mean, there's obviously there's a single event side to the practice, there's the mass tort side. What's, what's kind of been the, the allure or the draw, especially to the mass tort side? Because you know, when you hear about a lot of firms that are you know, investing in, in, in certain mass torts, they're, they're taking a very different approach than, than you and Rupal do. 
Yeah, you know, I think for us, um, we came into mass tourists and had an impact in the industry pretty quickly. And that's something we wanna continue. And, uh, you know, I think a, a lot of firms, you know, on the plaintiff side, look at mass tourists like, oh, it's just a moneymaker. Here's how I can do an inventory or do whatever. And, you know, look, I mean, it certainly can be lucrative. It's also very high risk, obviously. And, uh, you know, you can have in a litigation like the denture diesel litigation where one part's wildly successful, the other part's very difficult. And you have to take your lumps and, Certainly if you're true to your values and you press forward and handling cases with the skill and training you know your team has, you can have an impact. And you can have an impact not just in one case or 10 cases or 100 cases, but literally thousands of people you can impact and you can impact industries. And that's the lure of it for us. Yeah, I remember uh, Mike Papantonio would say, like he'd say, well, instead of focusing on auto accidents, like why not you know focus on things where we can actually drive change and change in legislature and change in, in, and so on and really you know save a whole lot of people. So it, it's great. It's just it's interesting in the sense that you know for a lot of mass torts or a lot of lawyers who approach it, just, it really they look at it as a money maker. Sure. Right? Yeah. So and it, it's very labor intensive. Yeah, and I think that's part of the challenge with mass torts generally as a marketplace now is there's so much venture capital coming in and and venture capital unfortunately that's what their focus is and and I think part of you know what we grapple with as a firm is you know how do we take that and actually use it for good and I think that's the obligation and how we can become more professional or bring professionalism to it is to keep an eye on that as mass toward attorneys and I think that's important I want to segue to talking about the client experience because I know this is something that you all focus on quite heavily, um, particularly even in the first hundred days. If you could speak to that, yeah, you know, it's, so we met Joey Coleman through Crisp, obviously, and you know, for us, we started as a national mass tort firm, and then we had the Pittsburgh office, which we opened in 2013, and so we had this this high scaled business, large volume business. Then we went back to like individual cases where we could actually sit down with the clients pre COVID, obviously, not as not as much even now, but but sit down with the clients individually, and so we looked at it and said, okay. Okay, we want to build up in the Pittsburgh office the client journey and client experience, but we also want to extrapolate back out to mass torts. And so certainly those touch points and connections are really important. Our team really feels comfortable with using, you know, simple iPhone and other things to create videos for our clients. And not just like I see people now using them to chase clients, but it's even staying connected to the clients, you know, using even John Rowland's ideas in terms of like giftology and, and doing things for clients, like taking all those pieces and kind of baking them together. We now have a client success manager, which is Stacy with our office. Her full-time dedicated position is making sure clients have the best experience. And it takes different skills, hats, and utility to do that on mass tours versus in the PI practice. I mean, we just got a, an automation award for Litify because how we automate in terms of responding to clients and not because we want to make the clients feel like a number through an automation, but instead those touch points. So it's, it's become important. So. And I know you mentioned even the client experience. Why is that important to you? Why, why emphasize that so much? Uh, we could spend hours on this, Michael, but you know, for our clients, we're gonna get them a monetary award at the end of the case. If we were able to say, okay, this is a case we want, we know where it's gonna go, like that's gonna happen. And within a margin, depending on who the lawyer is, it's gonna handle that. So then we say like, what value add can we offer them? And some of it's healing. You know, my mom, who's a social worker, works for our firm as a counselor. And so, as I mentioned already, you know, being able to work with them and have them help them obtain closure in their case is really important. If you're going to seek justice, you have to do justice in the process. And part of that for us, that doing good by doing right is to actually support the clients in healing. 
And that healing takes various forms. Some of it's just simply listening to the clients. Um, you know, one of the things I just talked to one of my coaching groups within our firm about recently was Amaga relationship therapy, which is literally a marriage counseling sort of therapy, uh, but it's this Imago dialogue, which is reflecting and mirroring and helping people heal as, heal as a result. And there's other pieces to it, but those pieces that are important to our team. And so just helping them be better listeners with our clients, for example. And so all this to us is really part of this journey. And I think within margins, we can impact the, the end result, but we can impact them individually on a more significant level. And on the note of doing good by doing right, so there's obviously doing that for your clients, but that extends also to the community. It does, yeah. And it's something that I've taken to heart. What Crispus says, you know, as leaders, we have to work on ourselves and, you know, be able to face outward. And I think once we take care of ourselves individually, then the team members, the team members take care of the clients, the clients take care of the firm. But then more broadly than that, if you take care of the community, the community also will take care of the firm as well. But if you give with the expectation of receiving, it just doesn't come. So you just have to give wholeheartedly. And for us, you know, that's one of the things I love about going back to Pittsburgh. You know, I said I made it back. It's, um, you know, opening up the Pittsburgh and West Virginia offices. We've been able to do things like our turkey giveaway. We've been able to go in the community and find people that, that really are respected in the community, like Najee Harris, for example, and working with Najee to then have an impact on a turkey giveaway or student distracted driving initiatives or supporting his The Bigger Picture Foundation and what he's trying to do with his foundation. And so we find these connections with people just because our heart's coming from the right place and their heart's coming from the right place. And people say to me like, well, how is it you're working with Najee Harris? Well, we had an agent we know who put us in contact, but he could have worked with any law firm he actually aligned in terms of our values. And that to me is just a, a beautiful thing about life and just builds relationships, which is wonderful. And for those listening who are either Alabama fans or Pittsburgh Steelers fans, in working with Najee Harris, I, I'm just curious, is that, um, had you done anything like that before? Like in, in working with an athlete or celebrity or something like that? Yeah, this, this is a second year. No, we hadn't done that before. And um, it was actually through Chris, one of the members in the Chris Bex group had introduced us to an agent, which really started it off. And that's where we got the idea from. But you start thinking about your message and what you're trying to do. And so if we say we want to do good in the community, how can we multiply that impact? You know, we're always thinking about that as leaders and as a firm. And so, you know, be able to align our brand with Najee Harris in a community way is really um, something that was meaningful to us. So I want, I want to shift gears because I'm curious. So 2020 during COVID, a bunch of us got on this Peloton kick and maybe you know, a little bit earlier than that. But by the time we got on board with Peloton, you were already, I think you were just getting off the Peloton bike and getting onto a road bike. Now as a, as a triathlete, has, have you always been that way? Or like, was there uh, in terms of like endurance sports and so on, or, or was there something that led to that? Yeah, in terms of myself and my journey with Peloton. So I bought the bike in September of 2015. So it's right after it came out and I had technology issues with it. It wouldn't hook to my internet, it was having issues. And then I, I went through a separation with my now ex-wife at the time. And so I just needed something like, I started meditating. I was like, okay, spiritually, mentally, I'm starting to like feel more, get in touch with myself, leave behind sort of that plaintiff's lawyer codependency, which I definitely am a recovering codependent. I think a lot of plaintiff's lawyers can re relate to that. But, you know, just physically wanting to get active. And so I started hiking and I'm like, okay, well, it's freezing outside. I got to get into something. So Peloton was a natural fit for that. And then I ended up in a, some Facebook communities, very positive communities. And a friend of mine started a group called Mileage Maniacs, which was just this group that literally just would see how many miles they could record in a month on a Peloton bike in classes. And then ended up doing a, a day in the studio with a 
bunch of my friends, we call it the Dirty Dozen. We did 12 classes in a row. And so that group of friends became close friends. And um, there's a guy, Jeremy Liznoff, who's a dear friend. And uh, Jeremy had done an Ironman. He'd done Ironman like Placid. And so he's like, hey, we should do this. And so of course I'm like, yeah, that sounds pretty cool. But of course I'm not an athlete. That's what I would say. Cause growing up, my dad would be like, oh, there's someone running. Like what a waste of time. Like you don't do that. So we started doing some stuff and I'm like, okay, I'm gonna try to do an Ironman. And uh, we signed up for an Ironman. And then Jeremy was up in like Placid with his family and he did a swim and he messaged me. He's like, yeah, I'm feeling like crap. I'm feeling really sick. And I was like, oh, that sucks. You know, I'm sure you'll be back on your feet soon. And within like, I think a seven to 10 day period, he ended up in the hospital. He'd had a number of many strokes. And it turns out that he had a defective heart valve, even though he was like collegiate Boston University swimmer, he had a heart valve that he didn't know that was defective. And so he ended up having a heart valve replaced. And so then it became him trying to get me to do an Ironman to me going, hey dude, like we're gonna do an Ironman next year. He's like, shit, no, we're not doing that. I was like, yeah, we are. So within nine months of his open heart surgery, we did Ironman, uh, half Ironman, Eagle Man. And that's really what gave me the bug is just, you know, I have trouble doing stuff for myself at times. So doing it for him was much easier. And uh, so, yeah, we got him across that finish line. And then since then I've done a bunch of them. So I'm curious, what's the draw of those ultra endurance events for you? Because it's, I mean, there's obviously a lot of training involved. It's quite painful. Like, what is it that, that attracts you to that? I think it gives you perspective in life. You know, part of it initially is like, how far can I go? What can I do? So my first really, I mean, I did that dirty dozen for Peloton, but then I did a 163 mile bike race across Indiana. That was my first like long distance thing. And then I did the half and um, you kind of like, you'll do a flat race and you're like, okay, I can do that. Now I want to do an elevation race. And I'm gonna go from a half distance to a full. And so you just kind of keep pushing the envelope. And I'm kind of that person, like I'm always trying to, you know, see what the next level is. I got into fishing and my, you know, my ex-wife would say like, oh, you started fishing locally. Now you're fishing hundred miles offshore from Montauk catching sharks and white marlin. Like that's just who I am as a person. And so that's really the sort of the path I've been in. And um, I said to you one day, I said, I did skydiving, but I set a limit of one time for myself because I just didn't want to run the risk because I knew I'd like it. And of course I do. I didn't want to do it all the time because I just, I don't know that it's healthy to do it all the time. So yeah. Well, look, you, you and I spoke about this, but I agree. I, I've done it once before as well. Once was enough for me. It's one of those things, I don't know, if you run the probability of it, I'm, I'm sure it's safe enough. But the fact that you, you were thrown out of an airplane one time, you landed on the ground, great, you know? <laughs> yeah, well, you know, it's interesting because I think with skydiving, I'm sure people would say that, you know, I'd have to, to learn about the sport obviously and what to do, but it seems like once you've experienced a free fall, it gets a little bit longer, but really what more can you do without getting too risky? And so, you know, unlike an endurance sport where you're like, okay, like I did 70, you know, miles, 70.3. And so, you know, now I'm gonna try to bump it up and what's the training look like? And the training's so different. You know, you can go from, you know, 45 minutes to an hour a day to literally an hour and a half a day during the week. And then weekends might be five or six hours. And unlike a pro athlete, you don't get to the luxury of like sitting around on the couch, you know, eating healthy food and just completely shutting your body down and trying to be stress-free. You still have kids, you still have, you know, the demands of your law firm you're managing, you still got to try cases, you have all these things you're doing. And so it becomes a lot to juggle, you know, and that's a challenge. So that can be kind of fun as well. But yeah, it's a, you know, I know I see an Ironman in your future, so. Yeah, well, I'll tell you, and, and with your new partner, it seems, with that, I'm curious, is the fact that you guys are doing endurance sports together? 
it's funny because she and I met obviously after my ex-wife and I um, had been separated and stuff for a good while. We ended up meeting on a dating app of all things. When we first exchanged messages, she was like, oh, if nothing else, you know, we'll at least have a running buddy. And we joke about it. But yeah, it definitely drew us together. She's done some halves with me. I think the luxury of being my age and um, maybe forming a new life partner is, you know, you get to pick people with those common interests because my ex-wife I met at 20 years old and I'm a much different person now than I was, you know, when I was 20. And so it's something Helen and I have really enjoyed. We enjoy traveling together. We certainly um, enjoy endurance racing and sports. We run together regularly. We bike together regularly. Um, I got her into swimming uh, more recently, although she swam some as a kid. So yeah, it's pretty cool. It's fun. So Eric, how do you, uh, how do you define success? You know, success, I think for me, at least personally is, you know, finding happiness. And it's not just um, finding happiness, like people would say generally like, oh, I enjoy this sport or doing whatever. I think it's more so looking at yourself and saying, you know, what is holding me back in life? And what is it that can rob me of my joy in any given time? And figuring out what that is and being honest with yourself and actually facing those issues and then working through them. What gave me the courage to even talk publicly and saying I was sexually abused at a young age was, you know, I went through therapy to work on that, EMDR therapy, which is really painful to do. But, you know, there's other things like, you know, doing the glass walk with you and others and CRISP and be able to stand up in front of a group and say, hey, you know, this is what happened to me and speak freely about it. You know, you let go of those things and uh, makes you a more complete person, a happier person. That's success. Like to me, like that's living life, you know, and got incredibly other things that I've done. But then the day, like the things that are most meaningful to me is to actually resolve those things and be able to move forward and see what's next and love life. Do you think there's any parallels? I'm just curious when you think about like the endurance sports and just being able to like, I mean, there's some aspect I feel to just suffering in general, whether it's meditative, whether it almost like forces you to kind of work through things that you have to work through, whether it's physical, mental or what have you. Do you ever see any parallels between all those? On a personal level, definitely, and certainly many others I've seen on different journeys, absolutely. We've talked about it, and certainly in your podcast, you've talked about it, Michael, it's just people in the face of their greatest adversity comes change, right? That's what they when they have their greatest change. And so if you think about that, if you're out suffering, working through, you know, you're on the last three miles or five miles of an Ironman, you know, there's a lot of suffering there. And then, you know, there's a lot of clarity that comes with it as well. Some of us, you know, you look at it and you say, God, if I can get through that, I can get through a lot of other things. And you can also leave a lot behind out there on the course as well, so. And then the, to take this further, it seems like the, the communities that are established between those, whether it's between triathletes or even between people riding Peloton bikes and so on, it's interesting in a way that it seems like you've almost rejected the traditional law firm community of just like traditional lawyers. I mean, I know you were talking about um, earlier of like, you know, planes and prostitutes and that whole thing is just kind of rejecting that. What do you see as the future of the legal profession? We're at a constellation where, you know, between a Me Too movement and, you know, what's going on with like Black Lives Matter, but then also what's going on in terms of like the changing of our industry and see what's going on in Arizona, for example. And, you know, I think the the successful people, the true game changers, the people that are really um, gonna be doing things out there is taking those and figuring out the right mixture to motivate people to uh, build a culture at their firms that can make a difference. You and I've talked about, you know, the generations coming through, they don't just want a paycheck, they truly want to have a cause. And I think it's an incredible opportunity. And it's, you know, is it more sensitive? Yes. I mean, my father is someone that on his deathbed said to me, looked at me, you know, I was tearful. I was like, don't give me that emotional bullshit, right? Like I carry that with me for a while, you know? It's like, well, wait a second. Like, is that- He said that on his, on his deathbed? He did, oh, yeah. Yeah, it was within about 10 days of him passing away, which is, which is tough. And, you know, at the time I took it in much differently than, you know, him just, you know, being who he was and what he was dealing with. 
But you know, when I look at that in that situation, like I don't want to be that way with my son at the point that I'm passing away. If I, you know, if I have a good fortune of saying goodbye at that time, this is where I think we're more evolved. And um, you know, and I think that you know, I'm a very big believer. Benet Brown saying, you know, vulnerability is a superpower, and obviously it has to be used judiciously and not just people. You know, I tell my team all the time, we have to be empathetic and compassionate with our clients. We have to turn up, and that's important. But being able to be vulnerable, I think, is equally as important. It takes courage, and I think that you know the two together can be really powerful. So Eric, as we come to a close, this being the Game Changing Attorney Podcast, what does being a game changer mean to you? The courage to challenge the status quo. You know, I think there's a lot of people who see, you know, like the changes in our industry, for example, but what are they actually doing about it? Do they have the courage to actually embrace what's happening and to make a difference in the movement or do they step back and just be on the sidelines? Yeah, it's just the courage to challenge and see where the market's going and actually affecting the status quo, I think is, is really what it means to be a game changer. I wanna give a huge thank you to Eric Chafin for taking the time to speak with us today. You know, what particularly resonated with me was when Eric said that adversity can be the catalyst to positive lifelong changes. Whether you're competing in a triathlon or scaling your law firm, find meaning in the struggle. The success and achievement will often follow. If you found this episode valuable, here are three free ways that I can help you grow your law firm. Number one, download the first chapter of my book absolutely free at gamechangingattorney.com. Number two, you can shoot me a text at 404-531-7691 and I'll answer any question that you've got for me. And finally, number three, if you can leave this podcast a five-star review, it'll help us gain access to more influential thought leaders and bring their lessons learned here to you. For more information on our interview with Eric Chafin, see the show notes for this episode in your podcast app or visit gamechangingattorney.com. 